you are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Uh, good morning, everybody. Can you all hear me? I'll probably forgo the microphone because I'm going to do that terrible thing and read my paper. How dreadfully dull and very academic of me. Sorry about that. Um, uh, I'm reading my paper just because I get stuck otherwise and forget what I'm talking about. So uh, I will do that. It's moving in its own. Shouldn't do that. Uh, thanks, Mark, for inviting me to this conference. Uh, very interesting topic. Uh, I want to talk about trees because I'm a, uh, I got into trees uh, in, a, in a big way. I started off as a field archaeologist and then became a pollen analyst. And now I just wander around looking at old trees uh, and trying to make people interested in them, which is not that hard, really, because people actually quite like trees. Uh, the concept of hidden heritage is a relatively new one to me, uh, and I want to talk about that today. My instinct for this is that we not so much have a hidden heritage, rather that we have an everyday heritage that we just don't think about very much. Uh, and, and when we do think about it, we notice that it's been lost, and we try and think about what we can do to record it and think about it and memorialize it. And we have lots of ways of doing that now. We can use Facebook, whole different ways of doing things. Uh, but we're modern Europeans, and we spend most of our lives inside. Uh, most of our lives staring at screens, actually, uh, depending on your job. Um, and because we spend so little time outdoors, we tend not to notice things. We lack observation skills, uh, or we have very specific skills. Uh, this combination of focus on specific items in the world or lack of focus means that we're not always able to correctly identify and observe things that are actually interesting in the world. We just don't see them. It's just as simple as that. Uh, as an archaeologist with a particular interest in the landscape, I tend to walk around looking at the ground. That's what I do, I'm afraid, because um, that's where my sensibility lies. I'm interested in observing the pattern of the ground as it rises and falls, the distribution of soil and stones and artifacts, because that's my business. This project and my research in trees came about when I was conducting surveys in the Lake District nearly 20 years ago. Uh, and occasionally I couldn't help looking up and noticing that I was surrounded by big old trees. I didn't notice the big old mountains, but I did notice the big old tree. Uh, this is a nice oak in some parkland uh, just near Oldswater. I wasn't sure what the historical and archaeological value of these trees was, but I felt I should be collecting data on them because any tree that's that size is obviously several hundred years old and so has been in the landscape for a long time and has been used by people for a long time. It's that connection between people and trees that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, so as part of that project, we recorded all the trees uh, with a, a <laughs> diameter of about 3.2 metres or over just in one area, just to see what they would tell us. Um, as my interest shifted towards the archaeology of trees and the archaeology of nature reserves, uh, I became aware of a degree of disconnect at all levels between how cultural and natural heritage are organised, managed, protected and recorded. So, you know, people need to think about how these things join together. Uh, I have a current project in the Forest of Dean, but we're just starting with that, and so I just aim to introduce it here. I was at Hay Festival last year, uh, and there was a round table discussion about why trees and woodlands have so little protection. There's virtually no tree 
protection for trees, very little protection for woodlands. Uh, the National Trust recently voted to set up a tree register and the Woodland Trust, who are very proactive in this area, uh, has argued for the establishment of a very important tree register. But what is an important tree and why is it heritage? Uh, this is uh, an ancient oak in Altwater. Um, it's about eight metres round uh, and is probably about five or six hundred years old. I've also done research on yews in uh, the Lake District that are over a thousand years old. So they're very significant parts of the landscape that have interacted with people over a very long period of time. Um, and Britain is unique in the number, size and distribution of ancient trees. The people who study ancient trees tell me that we are alone almost in Europe in having large numbers of very old trees. Most other countries in Europe, they uh, simply not, they don't make it to this great age in the same way they do here. Um, and they're a very striking feature of our landscapes and townscapes. Now the life of the tree is conventionally divided into youth, maturity and senescence. Uh, if matters were relatively simple, we would re simply record all of those trees that have reached the senescent phase, like this one. Um, and, you know, that's fairly clearly recognisable as an ancient tree. You know, it's not hard to spot. Um, there are two further categories of tree, though, that are interesting. And veteran trees come in many different forms. These are just some of them. All of these forms are the result of human interaction with the tree. So it tells a lot about past woodland practice, which we might not otherwise understand. Um, but as an archaeologist, I'm interested in all human interaction with trees. So we also have um, trees of special interest, um, and those are not necessarily very old, but they're interesting. So this is just near Dumfries, and this is a meeting oak. It's an oak where people would meet at crossroads traditionally, um, and I forget when the foot and mouth crisis was on, people were tying yellow ribbons around it and doing all sorts of things <laughs> to symbolise the problems that the community was having at that particular time. And there are lots of different trees. You see offering trees, you see <coughs> graffiti, a whole bunch of different kinds of trees. Um, so there are the trees of special interest in ancient trees as well. Uh, and the guidelines from Natural England and the Ancient Tree Hunt suggests that forest dominants such as oaks, ashes, and sweet chestnuts uh, are considered to be mature or interesting if their circumference when measured at breast height is greater than 3.2 meters. Any such trees, depending on where they are in the forest, may be older than 100 years. Any tree with a girth of about five meters, so five meters around, is valuable. And a tree with a girth greater than 6.25 meters uh, <coughs> is considered great conservation value. Uh, and there are lots of charts that can tell you the ages of trees, most of which should be taken with a big pinch of salt. Um, trees, although living things, uh, have a long history of use and interaction with both past and present communities. Uh, they have a lot to tell us about human behaviour in the landscape. Um, and there is a consensus which is open to challenge that present-day landscapes and environments that we wish to preserve are largely the result of human activity. So if we think of the landscape as an artefact, as a creation of human beings interacting with nature, the plants and animals that live in that landscape become part of the things we should be interested in. 
And this is thought to be particularly true of trees and woodlands with people like Rackham uh, and Peterkin holding that the biodiversity uh, within English ancient woodlands, hedgerows and parklands is the result of a long-term pattern of management. So the things you see growing there are the result of what people or how people have managed those woodlands. And if you change the management of the woodlands, you change what actually lives there. Uh, those authors have largely focused on woodlands, but I'm mainly interested in individual trees. Uh, and it's always the way when you start doing research, you hunt around for other people who are doing things and you don't find anybody. And then by chance you come across a book in a remainder bookstore and discover that Barnes and Williamson have been doing this since 2011, which is always, <laughs> always one of those things. Uh, so I would recommend their book to you. It's on Milton, but it's a very good book. And if we accept that most trees in the landscape are the result of phases of management and relaxation of management, then we can start to look for patterns in the kinds of trees that are planted or which have grown in abandoned plots, the kind of species that have grown or allowed to remain, and the types of management, whether that's pollarding, coppicing, allowing them to grow into maidens, that trees have been subjected to. So for this project, I want to treat trees as if they were monuments. I want to talk, think about trees as a monument and examine their distribution from the perspective of an archaeologist. Trees also can give us a broad datable chronology. And if dendrochronology is used, we can get a very accurate chronology of when these trees started growing in the landscape and how long they've been there and so on. Trees, however, unlike other monuments, Uh, die. And when they die, they just fall over. Uh, and they don't leave any record in the ground. So when a tree dies and falls over, uh, it's gone. It just rots away. Uh, and unless it's been recorded, it's no, there's nothing to remain to indicate its presence. Now, because of uh, environmental stresses in the present day, many of our ancient trees are in poor condition, uh, and many are dying or are already dead. So there's actually a crisis in the sense that um, most old trees are in very poor condition. They're not in places where people are caring for them and they need, the people who manage them need better education uh, to value those things uh, and um, they need recording before they just disappear. Um, so the Woodland Trust is, again, as I've said, a leading on this, but there is a long-standing division in England between the recording and care of cultural and natural heritage assets, which we're mostly talking about cultural assets today. Uh, her natural heritage assets are dealt with by um, English nature. Uh, cultural heritage assets are dealt with by, um, I get the name wrong, Historic England now? It's changed, I can't remember what it's changed. Uh, but trees, despite their clear cultural value, are not recorded by cultural heritage projects. So although archaeologists are interested in gardens, they are not interested in trees. As far as I can work out, there are about five trees that are on a historic environment record, and they're all in the Forest of Dean, and they're all named trees. Very few trees end up in the historic environment record. And they're never, ever protected as scheduled ancient monuments, no matter what their historical context is, even things like big oaks in Sherwood Forest and so on. So while the study of trees and landscape has been promoted by figures such as Rackham, Peterkin, and Rotherham, as archaeologists, we've largely ignored them, uh, except in Scotland, where uh, the Royal Commission did a very nice survey 
as the Cadzo Oaks, and there's probably other things being done you through the historic uh, land use uh, assessment. In Scotland, they do a historic land use assessment, which is slightly more tailored towards ecology, whereas in England, we do historic landscape characterization, which tends to ignore uh, the use of the land. Uh, so, there's lots of organisations deal with trees, though, so they're not ignored. Just none of them are really to do with cultural heritage. So we have the Woodland Trust, the Ancient Tree Forum, Natural England, the Forestry Commission, Historic England, maybe, uh, and local <coughs> government. But there is no statutory record for trees. Nobody has to record tree data. Um, if uh, tree, nobody uh, is required to collect information on their presence. Some councils may have a tree protection officer. That's a great job. A tree protection officer. Uh, and they can make tree preservation orders. So if there's a nice tree, usually in a town, may have a TPO on it. But a TPO doesn't actually protect a tree. You just have to tell the council that your development is really, really important and will bring jobs. Uh, and they will oblige and chuck it down to you. Um, these orders rarely include rural trees and the information is collected on a very ad hoc fashion, like a lot of the information we collect. It just depends if someone's interested. Um, woodlands may also be designated as um, a triple SI, uh, but it takes a whole woodland or as a national nature reserve. But in practicality, the protections for triple SIs and for national nature reserves are actually quite limited uh, and there's only 117,000 hectares of woodland protected in that way mostly ancient semi-natural broadleaf woodland so as far as I'm aware a TPO really is the best way of protecting a tree um, and <clears throat> I'm going to come on to a very boring bureaucratic bit I'm afraid so I'm just going to talk about the bureaucracy of tree protection for a while I'm sure you're all thrilled uh, recent changes to legislation uh, including uh, there's something called biodiversity offsetting. So that means if you have a nice nature reserve and you want to drive a railway through it, uh, they can go and make the nice nature reserve somewhere else. Now, if you know anything about ecology, nice nature reserves exist because they've been there for hundreds of years and they've generated a particular collection of species. You can't just go into a greenfield, spread some wildflower seeds and create a new nature reserve. It just doesn't work like that. Um, but that is the plan. So. DEFRA 2013 uh, has created this biodiversity <coughs> idea and that increases the threat to ancient trees, woodlands and the archaeology within them. So HS2, uh, if it goes through, we'll see 50 ancient woodlands uh, threatened with destruction along with a large number of other uh, archaeological sites uh, and nature reserves. And how much did the M1 and the M4 cost? Well, yes, exactly. Uh, the lack of integration of approach to woodland conservation uh, was perhaps clearly indicated by this site, Oakenwood, in 2013. Oakenwood was an ancient woodland threatened by quarrying for ragstone. Now, anybody who hasn't worked in London won't know that ragstone is a big stone. It's a really important stone. It's very in demand for uh, conservation in older buildings. So when the planning application went in, English Heritage went, great, more ragstone, cheaper ragstone. We can uh, fix all these buildings, 
but they didn't talk to uh, Natural England, who said, oh no, woodland destruction. So uh, Natural England said, uh, don't do it, and Historic England said, do do it. Uh, and uh, it went through the planning process, and um, eventually a spokesman for the Department for Communities and Local Government said, this planning application for an extension of an existing quarry was supported by Kent County Council, local MPs and English Heritage. English Heritage did not consider the floristic diversity of the wood to be a significant element of the historic or cultural environment. So they couldn't see that because a woodland had been there for a long time, that told us something about human beings, about the way human beings interact with the landscape. If it had been a garden, say, stand ahead, there wouldn't have been any question of quarrying because we can recognise gardens as something we do. We don't recognise the everyday agricultural activities that lead to the generation of these things as something we do, or at least the people who are in charge of organisations don't. Oops, I'm talking too long. Okay, so my current project is an attempt to use archaeological techniques to study the distribution of a natural heritage asset. So I'm looking at trees in the Forest of Dean. Uh, there are about 1,200 trees in the Forest of Dean on the database at the moment. Only about 400 of them are old. It's because the Forest of Dean is a working forest uh, and the Forestry Commission aren't really interested in understanding the trees they do. Uh, we're currently conducting pilots in uh, two areas, one around the heart of the forest of Teach House, where we've uncovered a whole raft of new uh, ancient trees, uh, and another one nearby, where again we've expanded and doubled the number of veteran trees uh, recorded. Uh, we're combining this with LIDAR data, as Hyrule will tell you later, to record the archaeology and its uh, association with the ancient trees. And we hope by combining this we can get a good history of the uh, post-17th century history of the forest. There's very little remaining in terms of trees from the pre-1700s, but we should get a good idea of uh, when the forest went from being a chase forest and a uh, iron mining forest to being one of the centers of the Industrial Revolution, which the Forest of Dean was. Uh, so, just to kind of sum up a little bit, this is one of the nice trees there. This is the forest giant. I like this. This is a classic hidden tree. Um, it's one of the oldest trees in the forest uh, and it's in some post-1950 conifer plantation uh, and will... They've done a good job of... They, well, they haven't done a good job. As those conifer trees grow, they will over, over, overgrow the oak tree and it will probably die unless we do something to save it. Uh, and if you want to find this tree, which is the oldest tree in the forest, good luck. Buried, hidden away, down, off a path, uh, with no signs to it whatsoever. Uh, and you basically <coughs> just have to wander around looking for a big tree. Uh, and have hoped the boar don't eat you. Yeah, there's lots of wild boar there now, so that's quite nice. Um, I would argue that in England, uh, the failure to consider trees as monuments by archaeologists has several causes. We are too anthropocentric and monument-focused in our study of landscapes. As a discipline, there has been an uneven development of expertise in historical geography and biogeography and a tendency to ignore recent periods. When there is a concern with recent landscapes, 
It is often project-focused on elite or state behaviours, and a good example is the Defence of Britain project, or the development of landscape gardens by elites. The more mundane archaeology uh, and heritage of the recent past is often overlooked unless associated with individuals from humble origins, John Lennon's house in Liverpool, for example, or industries which have particular significance. In our study of landscapes, I argue that we need to start including ecological information, such as the distribution of plants and animals, into our understanding of the cultural landscape. The living element of the landscape, in terms of its ecology and biodiversity, has a great deal to tell us about landscape history. In the same way that archaeologists employ paleoecological techniques to inform our understanding of the deep past, I am arguing that we should be employing ecological techniques to understand landscape development in the postmodern period, uh, post-medieval period even. Uh, and those are my acknowledgements. Thank you very much. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.